Hey, this is Justin Barrier. I'm Rob Mahoney. And I'm Big Waz, a.k.a. Wazzy Lambray. And we are the hosts of Group Chat on the Ringer NBA show. Hey, did you guys know the Ringer NBA show feed now has shows six times a week? On Sundays, you can find me chopping it up with some of my favorite people from the NBA world on weekends with Waz. On Mondays and Thursdays, you can listen to Logan Murdoch and Raja Bell on Real Ones. And on Tuesdays, J. Kyle Mann and Jonathan Sharks discuss up-and-coming talent in the NBA on Upside High. Wednesdays, you can listen to Justin, Rob, and myself on Group Chat. And on Fridays, check out The Answer with Chris Ryan and Sirit Sohi. So go ahead and follow The Ringer NBA Show on Spotify. We promise you'll never run out of content. This episode of The Ringer F1 Show is brought to you by eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, from superchargers and brakes to exhaust kits and beyond, eBay Motors levels your baby up to its peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride or your money back. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Armorall. When you want the best for your car, preparation is everything. That's why teams like Oracle Red Bull Racing use Armorall to prep their team vehicles. From interior cleaning and protectant wipes to car wash and wheel and tire cleaner, Armorall, America's number one trusted auto appearance brand, has what it takes to keep the two-time defending champions looking their best inside and out. And get this, now through May 31st, you can get $5 back when you spend $20 prepping your car like the Oracle Red Bull Racing team. All you have to do is upload your receipt to Armorall's website after you buy. Visit armorall.com for program details and redemption. Terms apply. Armorall, chosen by champions. It is the Ringer F1 show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I am Kevin Clark. Another daily episode here from Miami. Saw a lot of things. We're going to get to it. We have Joshua Robinson from the Wall Street Journal. Adam Stern from the Sports Business Journal. Yes, I am still hoarse. It is much better than it was yesterday. Still laboring through it. Too much content, uh, but sound vaguely normal here on Thursday. Uh, We're going to do a post-practice episode on Friday. Um, We decided not to do a nuts and bolts preview until we see the cars. Frankly, the track is just so new that previewing anything before we saw actual speed on the track seemed a little bit foolish. Um, so look for an episode after practice on Friday, nuts and bolts preview, and then obviously after qualifying, obviously after the race. Here's Josh. All right, Josh Robinson from the Wall Street Journal covers a lot of things, including F1. He's the European sports correspondent for the journal, which means he covers a lot of F1. He's the author of The Club, which, uh, according to The Athletic, destroyed college football. I mean, if what people do with that book, we cannot be held responsible So for. just so everybody knows, um, essentially, so Josh and uh, Jonathan Clegg, both of my old coworkers, wrote a book called The Club about the formation of the Premier League. And when the SEC expanded a couple of weeks, a couple of years ago, excuse me, um, The Athletic wrote a piece that basically said that uh, Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, uh, loved this book. It was on his bookshelf. He recommended it to everybody. And the conclusion that The Athletic drew was that the SEC wants to be the Premier League of uh, of college football, and it basically is. So when your favorite college football team is playing in the third division of the SEC after being relegated twice, um, you have Josh and, and John to, to blame. You're welcome. 
So um, you interviewed Max Verstappen uh, for a while for a piece this week. You spent a lot of time with Lewis Hamilton. Um, this is a really interesting time in F1. Uh, I saw, so, so on Wednesday, um, excuse me, on Thursday, uh, I saw some things I've never seen before at a sporting event. Um, Pierre Gasly, who was giving a, a little bit of a, um, a group media session, kind of like his eyes got so big because there were so many people there. And he literally said like, it's just me. Like what, 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 what is everybody doing here? Um, and Yuki Sonoda seemed kind of off, off a little bit, just seeing, you know, 20 people trying to, to talk to him, um, on a random Thursday. Uh, I saw so much today and I can't even imagine what's going to happen tomorrow when Lewis Hamilton talks, when Max Verstappen talk, and then people in Miami, of which there are thousands trying to get into the track, there were hundreds of people on the track tonight. Um, when they see these guys, it's like Beatlemania down here. Down here. But that's the thing; these people are no longer professional sports people. You know, they're not just athletes; they're soap stars too. Yeah. These are the real housewives of Monte Carlo. <laughs> it's it's Netflix has taken them to a different level yeah. and created a secondary persona for them that's kind of overtaken the fact that these guys drive cars really fast for a living. All right, so there's a couple of things that that I want to get to that I saw today. Number one, the funniest thing I saw was, so there were a bunch of uh, people like, oh, I guess paid a bunch of money to get into the track on Thursday evening around 6 p.m. And they were in the pit lane and they were taking photos of the half-built cars and all that stuff. And so Michael Bauman, my colleague, and I were walking on the track around this time. And we, we didn't have enough time to do the whole track, so we were cutting back. And as we were walking back, we saw the entire Aston Martin team, including Sebastian Vettel, doing a track walk. And I don't know if that's common or not, but it seemed like Sebastian was just one of the guys. And <laughs> right behind Sebastian and the rest of the uh, Aston Martin team was a tourist bus showing a bunch of ticket special pass holders the track. And they were just, the guy was just laying on the horn. <laughs> begging Seb Vettel, a four-time world champion, to move out of the way. That, to me, is Miami in a nutshell right now. Also, a four-time world champion in the pre-Netflix era. <laughs> it basically didn't happen. Um, so there were a couple things, uh, again, that, that, that I thought were really interesting. Um, Gunther Steiner talked today. He says he's never seen the Netflix show. That seems like a lie, right? I'm not sure I buy that. How can that guy not see the Netflix show? It's like... I don't know. It's like Matt Damon saying he's never seen Goodwill Hunting. Right, exactly. It was the, and, or Ford versus Ferrari, in fact, um, to draw a car parallel. Um, is there something that you learned in your your talk with Max, which was around the time of Imola, it's coming out in the Wall Street Journal this week, um, that really intrigued you about the next couple of days, next couple of weeks, this title hunt? Um, does anything uh, does anything that he say uh, said inform what you think about him going forward? What's interesting about Max is that this is the guy who was basically uh, created in a lab to be an F1 world champion. You know, from his father, Yoss, was a driver who was like a, he was basically pack fodder for his entire career. But, you know, he raised him from the very beginning. He was very tough with Max, too, as soon as he showed an interest in getting behind the wheel. Um, and so, you know, he he accelerated through the junior categories. He only spent one year basically in a in a category below F1. Um, and then he gets to F1, breaks all those records that will never be broken now because of the Verstappen rule. And then for all of that, for the guy who lives and breathes F1, he tells me, um, when I get home, I don't really think about Formula One too much. And, you know, it's, you know, he, he told me about the other stuff he does. And 
you know, it's not exciting. What is it? What, what are his hobbies that keep him not thinking about F1? Because this sounds like cope. Because I think that one of the most important things here is that everyone keeps saying Lewis is more than an athlete. And Max is just kind of, as you said, creating a lab to win an F1 world title. And I think this might be Max trying to pivot towards more Lewis-centric interests. And I don't know if he's he's wired like that. Um, I'm not sure he's pivoting because his <laughs> idea, when I asked him like what he likes to do on a day off, you know, what's what does he how does he spend his time right. when he's back in Monaco, which is you know not a normal place to have a day off because you drive you walk around and like the curbs are painted red and white from the <laughs> Monaco Grand Prix year round. They're there, like uh, you can't ignore it. Um, but Max Verstappen, F1 world champion, what do you do on a day off? Um, have a nice lunch. <laughs> He's, this is what he said. Let's get, let's get, let's get our guy some hobbies, is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, yeah, but, wow. but it might be because he is so so created for F1 that you know there were never any other interests. I don't know. We, we'll find out how he sort of evolves into this role. Okay, so I keep asking the same question to so many people who know, and I've spent time with Lewis. You spent hours with him a couple of years ago um, for WSJ Magazine. And I believe his Instagram photo is still from that photo shoot. That's a nice feather in your cap. If this doesn't work, I saw Lewis today, and it's so funny how well he dresses for 10 seconds of the walk through the parking lot and over the bridge and into the paddock. Um, it's it, He was wearing kind of a blue, I'm not really sure what you would call it, a jumpsuit that had a a... Um, a, a long belt. I'm not really sure. I honestly, I'm not even going to attempt. I put it on my Instagram story, um, but it's not anything I've seen anybody wear. Uh, but he's he's dressed extremely well. He's still stylish, Lewis. Um, but he's such a superstar, and he's built up such a um, a brand. I, I guess you can call it that. And you know, porpoising down this long straight in Miami, there are three DRS zones. And I, I, someone was joking with me today about what a nightmare it would be if Mercedes is still porpoising like it has the past couple races. It would be embarrassing. And I, you kind of feel like if Lewis comes here and, and just puts up a zero, it's going to be absolutely um, devastating for him because you know both Pierre Gasly and Lewis Hamilton said that this, is now, this now feels like the Super Bowl um, for the teams for the drivers, like this, the, the amount of attention, this feels like the Super Bowl. And I guess the big picture question, Josh, is like, what happens if Lewis doesn't get better in this Mercedes car in 2022? Like, how does he take this? I, th- I think he takes it very badly and very personally. Um, you know, what we saw, the the maybe disagreement with Toto a few weeks ago, uh, you know, that that's the only place he can kind of do anything about it, right? Yeah. He can't come out and say the car sucks. He can't come out and say the team has let me down. So he has to sort of settle that internally. Um, but there there are two things at play and there are these two tracks, right? To being Lewis Hamilton. One is being the F1 driver and two is being Lewis Hamilton, the superstar. And what was always really interesting to me, especially before the past couple of years in America is that he was always more famous among other famous people right. than he was to the public at large. Right. You know, he comes to America and A-listers want to be around him. And, it, and the crowd is, you know, people like Serena Williams, like other Tom goats, Brady. Tom Brady. Um, and until Formula One's recent bump here, you know, I think he could have walked down Fifth Avenue and not been recognized. Yes. Um, I, mean, I think that he, he's talked about that before. I mean, there's a reason he had that house, I think, in Colorado. Right. He spent a lot of time here. He would go jogging in, in, 
in New York and be yeah, completely yeah. unbothered. Like and, this and is a yet, new level of fame for him, which is weird to say because he's one of the most famous people on the planet. He's one of the most famous people on the planet, and he's making like NBA max money. Right. <laughs> um, so he, he's he making put, Jonathan Isaac money. <laughs> so it puts him in this position where right at the moment where people are really tuning in in the place he wants to be famous in most uh, is the moment that the car lets him down. Does this get fixed or is this just, I mean, I, listen, the title race is over as far as, you know, the two cars that we know are competing for. No one is, is going to get in that mix. And Zach Brown was on this podcast um, a couple of weeks ago and he, he said the same thing where, you know, we know who's running away with this, uh, the, the two cars, but Mercedes just to save face has to be a clear number three at the end. And listen, George Russell was, was second in the championship, I think, before the last race. So let's not act like it's it's the worst thing in the world. But does this get fixed by the end of the season and Mercedes is the clear number three and we're not talking about this as a disaster car? Look, the first year of a new formula is always weird. That's how British American Racing and Jensen Button have a world title. Right. <laughs> um, like some people get to the point really quickly and figure out how to how to play the new game. And some people don't. It takes them a year. I was of the mind that Mercedes would sort this out after one of the long breaks, but you know, if they wait till the summer break to to get the car straight, that's going to be too late. Um, and I, I was, I thought we would have seen progress by now. All right, you know, it, it, there was an interesting quote from Hamilton. I think it was after the last race where he said, "We're not fighting for the championship. We're fighting to understand the car." And I think that's I, I, you almost wonder. Like I used to hear a thing about Coach K. The coach K was always either coaching for the next game if the game was out of hand, if winning or losing, or he was coaching for the next season if the season was out of hand, or if they were so good they were going to win the ACC, running away or whatever. It seems to me right now that Mercedes is 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 worrying about the next year because this thing this thing is over. Um, first impressions of of Miami and what we're seeing right now. Uh, I'm just glad it's hot. <laughs> it's I mean, so hot. I brought I brought a jacket both days of the track, and I will not be using it. You won't be using it, and it's it feels warmer than the last hot place I was, which was Doha, like three weeks ago. Uh, also <laughs> home to a Grand Prix. <laughs> also home to a Grand Prix. Um, is this? You know, we have Adam Stern on later, and we're talking a bit about F one's pivot towards America. And the thing I think is interesting is I don't want to repeat myself from from what I said to Adam, but I think. F1 is embracing America in a way I didn't necessarily like. I thought there might be a little more gatekeeping. Um, I think everybody's pretty happy to be in Miami this week. Yeah. Yeah. This is really the, you know, they've decided that if, if Monaco is the embodiment of old F1, they're ready to make Miami the embodiment of new F1. Mm. Um, this is, ex this is everything they want it to be. Right. And it's got, it's, it's got the lavishness. It's got the celebrity aspect. It's got the, perfect helicopter shots. Uh, it's even got an element of that. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's kind of a craziness, but kind of a, a stupidity too. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? But circus. It, Are you it, looking for yeah, the word circus? Exactly. In, but in the most yeah. loving way, um, it, it's just got that thing th where everyone wants to be here. Yeah. And I think the paddock this weekend is going to be uh, an incredible collection of A, B, C, and D-listers who are all trying to catch on to this F1 thing because I think they're actual fans. This is not being seen courtside at the garden. This is, uh, you know, they spent the pandemic watching Drive to Survive and now they want to be there. It's, so it's, it's a little bit like, like who gets in 
the paddock as a celebrity versus who's going to be at the grandstand. Like it's always, you always see that at like a, at the AFC championship game. Like I remember when the chiefs won the AFC, like Paul Rhodes in the middle of the locker room, like Eric Stone streets in the middle of the locker room with Mahomes and all those guys. And like, there's a bunch of character actors who are outside and it's like, Oh man, that's so tough. Like, could you imagine being the guy where it's like, yeah, we're going to actually cut this right under Rudd. Rudd can come in. So we get to see who's actually like when every famous person on the planet is applying to get on pit lane, um, get on the grid, get in the paddock. Like uh, James Corden was on, it was in the paddock today doing a thing with uh, a team that identifies with the color orange. Um, and, and like, that's, that's what you're going to see. I saw a list. David Beckham was on it. We're going to get to a little bit with, with, with Adam. Um, but like, this is going, every famous person who's not occupied is coming to this race. Right. That's the crowd. And the crazy thing here is that even the people who aren't going to get onto the pit lane, who are sort of slightly below that David Beckham level, <laughs> I think we're going to be happy to be here. You've done a lot of reporting on just how F1 has changed, um, over the past couple of years. You mentioned the, the soap the soap part of it. Um, what's next for the next couple of years of F1? Um, the way they, they market it, the way, I mean, the new drivers who are coming up, um, you know, is, is Europe still central to their identity? Um, you know, you've been to a lot of European Grand Prix. Is there a, I don't want to, I don't want to throw Europe under the bus. Is there a, um, a staleness to some of these, uh, European places that have been, on, on the grid, I'm not talking about Spa, I'm not talking about Silverstone, I'm not talking about the, the 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 crown jewels of the sport, but are there, could you see a future of F1 that looks different than it is now? Well, I mean, they've been chipping away at Europe since long before this current moment, where they're they're really paring it down to the, the few Grand Prix that are kind of immovable in right. European racing tradition. You mentioned Silverstone, Spa, uh, you have to have an Italian one because Ferrari is Ferrari, you have to have Monaco. But everything else starts to feel optional. Um, you know, Barcelona is probably the other one just because that's where they have tests. Of course. Uh, but everything else, they've expanded the calendar so much just in our lifetimes. Uh, when I was a kid watching it growing up in Europe, we were looking at 14, 15, maybe 16 races a year. Now they're up to 22. And they've organized it where there is a European season. It's a small part of it. And then you've got your Asian swing, you've got your Middle East swing, you've got your America swing. And it's um there, I think they're just gonna keep stretching the limits of the calendar to add more big money races um uh, without losing the European core forever. Can we do a minute on how ridiculous it would be if they cut Monaco? Like it, it, Mick Schumacher was actually talking about this today, where he was saying that for the drivers, Monaco is so different because you're that you're you, you get comfortable going so high speed so close to the wall it's much harder than you think and obviously listen if you've ever done the the damn played it on the f1 video game you understand how hard monaco is but like i think drivers have a bigger appreciation even though it's a parade even though it's a processional like just the idea of that level of danger in monaco um, and maybe some of it's removed by the fact that it's it's everybody does it every year everybody does it on a simulator from the time they're five years old if they get to f1 um, but when but I that's think, why they love it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to hell. I think I'm going to Monaco next week and I'm, I'm, I'm renting a car and, and doing a couple of those turns, going, all go, the lights. going, going through those tunnels. Um, but I don't like when I'm here and, and, and so much of this week, not just for people like Lewis, but people from like Yuki Sonoda, Yuki Sonoda, I just saw Yuki Sonoda with Roman Grosjean, like, come on, celebrities are out. Um, but no, um, but like so much of this Miami race is the glamour of it. And you can't get any more glamorous than Monaco. And I just kind of think that 
no, not to do Don Draper's um, speech on nostalgia, but like you can't, you can't start chipping away what made people identify with the sport. And from my perspective, you know, there was a, um, a pretty famous athlete a couple of years ago, he gave an interview where he was saying that, um, that, uh, and a sports psychologist has said to him that one, one problem was that he had gotten disconnected from his childhood and he needed to see people from his childhood. He needed to reconnect with them because he had become famous very early and that he had decided um, that he wasn't going to have any, anything to do with what he was when he was age five, when he loved the, the sport he played. And so he ended up just flying about a bunch of his friends and whatever. Like, I, I know this is a weird thing to say, but like, I feel like the same thing is true of fans, right? But like, if you don't have the connection to what you fell in love with when you were five years old, you know, like those are old Orlando magic uniforms. I can't get enough of them. Like when I see horse grand on TV, I can't get enough of it. When I see old orange bowl games, you know, beating Florida state wide, right? Hell, I, I, I will watch that every single day. And I kind of feel like the more you think about removing a place like Monaco, the more you lose that connection to why people fell in love with the sport. Yeah. I don't think people, I, I don't think we're yet at a place where we're talking about removing Monaco from the calendar, but the, the kind of truth there is it, it not to bring it back to soccer, but I'm going to bring it back to soccer. Um, is that when you export something that is so distinctly European and so entrenched like that, like formula one or like the premier league, you know, what people are buying in part is the, you know, when Americans tune into the Premier League for the first time, they're also going for that like narrow streets and the smell of onions frying and, you know, on the walk up to the stadium and the, you know, the drunkenness at 11 a.m. All of those things are what people seek out when they then come to England to get that authentic experience. And so for organizers and the clubs, uh, the tension is how do we capture these new audiences but keep right. enough of that authenticity to still say, you know, we're selling the real thing. You know, it's it's the tension between the 40,000 in the stadium and the potential audience of hundreds of millions out there. Prediction for Sunday? Uh, I think it's Max. I think it's Ferrari. All right, Josh Robinson, Wall Street Journal. Read his Max Verstappen piece that comes out this week and read him every time he writes about Europe. See you, buddy. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Mobile One. The Mobile One brand knows podcasts are a great escape. You can listen to people talking about living and maybe even driving, but of course, there's no substitute for the real thing. So the next time you're looking for an escape, try an actual escape. Take this podcast for a ride in the car and immerse yourself in the drive, because sometimes the best way to escape reality is to truly live in it. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash the ringer to learn more. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. All right, joined now by Adam Stern. He covers motorsports for the sports business journal. What's going on, buddy? Hey, man. Good to see you. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, So what we want to do is we want to take the listener back to how we got here. So we're in Miami. We're overlooking a very nice looking deck. Very rich people are going to be out there. We're not one of them. Um, we'll be behind this glass that we're currently at. We're overlooking about 5,000 seats are going to go on the, on the secondary market for like anywhere from three to 5,000. It's ridiculous. Um, the road here started when Liberty Media bought Formula One a few years ago, um, let's let's start at the top. Um, what was their strategy, and how did we we get here? Yeah, I think their strategy was is they saw F one was this sleeping giant. Um, it was a underutilized property. So Bernie Eccleston, who ran the property for yeah. the decades back to the seventies, he built this amazing property, but he didn't really leverage it to the fullest extent possible. There wasn't a lot of sponsors. They were very restrictive on social media, digital media, all those things. Very restrictive in terms of what you could do. Um, the, obviously, the prices to get to races are very high. So it was seen as being very exclusive. And it wasn't um, almost relatable or, or accessible for the average man, uh, average person. So Liberty Media, when they came in and bought it, they obviously saw that low-hanging fruit. Yeah, They said, hey, we can instantly let teams post more on social media. They weren't able to do that. We can, hey, maybe we should do this like docu-series, kind of like <laughs> NFL hard knocks on on HBO and we'll call it uh, Drive to Survive yeah. on Netflix and we'll see how it goes. So they started doing all these different things to see if they could unlock that extra value with that low-hanging fruit. And, you know, obviously at the same time, even way back in 2017, 2018, they were talking about, hey, we want to have a race in Vegas. Mm -hmm. We want to either that or Miami or maybe New York City. They were talking at the time, let, let's add some destination races to the U.S. So... Back then, and by the way, the executives at the time were like Chase Carey. He's mm -hmm. the, he was the F1 CEO, but before that, yeah. he grew Fox Corp. That's right. Um, Sean Bratch is the former ESPN executive. They plucked him over to come run this. So they had brought in this American brain trust to kind of Americanize the sport. Um, and they started, you know, over the years being able to kind of tick off things on their box. So, for example, again, they were working on Miami since 2017. Right. We talk about Tom Garfinkel, Stephen Ross, the Dolphins. It's just not happening for the first time this weekend. So it's amazing how long these things take to make progress in F1. But slowly but surely, they have been able to do it. And obviously, I think the biggest thing on top of ESPN and the exposure was the pandemic happening. Yeah. Everyone getting stuck at home and then saying, hey, I want to watch something on Netflix. What do we watch? Let's try Drive to Survive. And now here we are. Yeah, I, I was at a McLaren event at the Stock Exchange a couple of weeks ago, and they were unveiling a new sponsor. And the woman who was in charge of sponsorship said the reason she was doing it was because she was, during the pandemic, watching Drive to Survive, knew nothing about the sport. And by the end of the series was like, I want to partner with McLaren. I want to partner with F1. I just want to be in the F1 business. And we're seeing that. Bernie Eccleston, who you, you referenced earlier, he had a quote once that he thought that the average F1 fan should be able to buy a Rolex. And I think everything around that is is changing now where it's just people the entry point is, is so much different it's become more of a casual fan sport it's not a a uh, necessarily a tech a techie dominated sport like it has been where people are really into the diffusers and there still is that and there there are people who've gotten to drive to survive and use that as an entry point 
to the F1 technical subreddit where they're posting 50 times a day about rear wings, right? Like that, the, that, that, that pathway is still happening. It's just different now and the personalities are different. Um, you mentioned the hard knocks thing. It's funny because at the owners meeting a couple of weeks ago, this guy I know in, in the league office who knows I do the F1 thing came up to me and said, you know, I liked drive to side the first time when it was called hard knocks. And I think that there's now a little bit of, there's leagues looking at this and saying either how can we replicate this or we're already doing this and why aren't we getting this sort of recognition? Um, the Netflix strategy, was that an accident? Did they know it was going to take off like it did? Like what, what, what happened where the Netflix, uh, the Netflix editization of F1, um, that started where, Adam? Yeah, I think one thing about F1 is it's a very unique property. So, you know, you talk about the NFL, they had been doing hard knocks for years. They had been doing that prior to Drive to Survive. Well, the NFL only plays in the U.S. They don't have teams that are owned by Ferrari and Mercedes and McLaren. Right. They don't have um, international personalities. The same. It's not. It's a you know people from all over the world that are the drivers in F1 versus a very American centric product in the NFL. So I think there are these unique qualities about Formula One that people didn't realize were there. And again pandemic happens. They're sitting at home. They want to watch something. They see, they pull on drive to survive and it's yeah. like, whoa, this is kind of like soccer. This is kind of like the racing version of the EPL. And so I think that's part of the reason why you've seen a lot of EPL fans and Euro files get attracted to this because it's somewhat similar just in the racing form. What are the economics of a race weekend? Like who, who pays for this? How much do they get? I mean, like take me through how either lucrative this is or how much maybe the Dolphins are spending so much money they're not even making money. Like as someone who covers the, the dollars and cents so closely with motorsports, what does this weekend look like for the city of Miami, for the Dolphins, for the stadium, for, for everybody? You know, traditionally, Formula One had a very set model where they basically licensed the rights to a promoter and the promoter bought it. Usually somewhere between, it costs 10 to $25 million annually for the right to host a race. That's what COTA has been paying basically um, through a subsidy from the state of Texas. Right. So... Um, they kind of look at this as this is their chance to kind of grow in the U.S. in a big way. Um, I think, you know, the amount of money that probably have been spent on this race, I would have to estimate 50 to $100 million, at least in terms of what they have put into this track. They've got a 10-year deal. So um, even if they don't make all their money back this year, yeah. they, they see it as a long-term investment. But the amount of money that's been poured into this thing uh, is certainly well into the eight figures. You know, you look into potentially into the nine figures. You look at the garages. They built that just for yeah, this and it's, race. It's permanent. It's permanent. Um, they said that um, you might have seen on the media tour yesterday. They're talking about they've kind of built in a multi-purpose way, yeah. so that you know when the race is gone, they can use it for other things like during the Dolphins season, things like that. Um, so the thing about it though is when Liberty came in, they wanted to try some new models. So uh, for example, in Vegas, they are promoting it themselves, which is totally different. And then here, from what I understand, there's somewhat of a hybrid arrangement. So I don't know the full details, but it appears like they have some skin in the game here in Miami as well. Um, the Dolphins are obviously the major promoter. Um, but it seems like, you know, with the amount of money that they're charging for tickets, they're going to make well into the eight figures, uh, high eight figures, if not low nine figures. So even if they don't profit this year, um, if they're able to do this and, and do this every year for, for several years, they're going to profit in due course. Well, even, even if they're losing money... Like I, you, you mentioned the phrase lost leader. I think they like this from a prestige standpoint. Tom Garfinkel was giving a speech last night at the event that we were both at. We basically said that, that they want to be the only stadium or are the only stadium where Jay-Z and Beyonce can play, Messi can play, the Williams sisters can play, and Lewis Hamilton can play. 
They like that. And I, I, I really don't think there's actually another stadium like that. But I, obviously, you're, you're kind of filtering in a weird way to where you, you become, you know, trying to become some really famous stadium when maybe you aren't, um, but you're attracting that kind of talent. So I think they're okay, even if they ended up losing money by building all this stuff. This is what they want. They want to be the glamour stadium. I mean, they're in a weird part of South Florida. Um, they're not in either Miami or Fort Lauderdale, really. Um, quite a, quite a bit away um, from both those places. But they're trying to attract Miami glamour um, to a different part of South Florida, which I, I, I think is interesting. Um, t- take me through uh, the the media aspect of this because F1 basically a couple of deals ago, from what I understand, gave away their TV rights to ESPN just to see what they had. Um, it was on NBC before that. Obviously, longtime fans will know about the Speed Channel um, before that going back going back a ways. Um, that's that far, that that far uh, it goes back way before Netflix. Um, and so I'm curious, Adam, uh, what the future of F1 on American TV looks like. And uh, the number you threw out there was, I think, 75 million is what they were they were seeking, which is not crazy. I think it's it's a crazy. I think people the sticker shock from going to pretty much nothing to a little bit to 75 million dollars a year, I think, was 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 wise. Media executives reacted the way they did. Um, but what does F1 on TV look like after this year? You know, it's still to be determined. I mean, I think um, we'll have to see if ESPN wants to pony up. Um, you know, clearly there, and I expect there's going to be some media executives from other companies here this weekend. I would not be surprised if, you know, some of the questions you're asking about right now are going to be determined over the next couple Mm. of weeks. I think, you know, these things are still going on. So, um, clearly ESPN wants to retain the rights. Um, as you said, you know, when Liberty Media bought the series, the ratings were so low. They're like, Hey, let's take this to ESPN. It's, we'll be so good from the exposure. We don't need the money right now. We're gaining so much money from all over the globe. We'll grow it. And that's what they've done. So, you know, it's a blessing and a curse because obviously for ESPN, they've helped grow this property, but now they're going to have to, you know, pay a lot more if they want to keep it. Um, they said that they are committed to staying commercial free if they keep the rights. We'll see if they're able to do that. Um, you know, at a certain point, you have to be able to, you know, you can't lose a lot of money. So if they're right now, ESPN originally paid zero. Mm-hmm. Now they're paying about $5 million a year. Um, that's not a lot of money in TV. So that's why they're able to be commercial free. If you go up to $50 million, $75 yeah. a year, it might be a lot tougher. That's something to keep an eye on because obviously American F1 fans, especially new fans, have really loved how it's commercial free. Yeah. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on. I think clearly NBC would like to get the rights back. They've kind of t- they've dubbed themselves as the home of motorsports and yet at the same time they've lost Formula One. So they've yeah. lost some things. So I think they'd love to get them back. Um, you know, I don't think there's going to be too many other players besides those two in terms of the traditional broadcasters. But let's see if an Amazon or a Netflix also steps up. And in media rights, you really only need two bidders to really get a big increase. And so I think, you know, they're going to have well more than two. They're going to have at least two. And that's all you need. They might have three or four. And so, you know, our media writer, John Aran, says he thinks 75 is a little bit high um, in terms of what he's heard. But I think they're certainly going to get close to at least 50 million a year. And um, that's big for them. I mean, going from you know pretty much zero to fifty million dollars in a couple years is is a major growth. You also cover fight sports, and what's interesting is that the UFC had this with the Ultimate Fighter, where they were able to take a reality show and turn it into real substantial ratings increases for their pay per view events, um, for their you know basically generate stars in a way that most sports are not capable of. I think that everybody reflexively said, "Let's do Drive to Survive for our sport." Golf is already filming right now. Tennis is filming right now. We'll see how that happens. But if you're looking and you're taking lessons, I don't think the lesson is just, let's just do this for our sport and hope it sticks. Um, there's distribution parts of it. There's there's creative control parts of it. Um, if you were 
you know, if, if another league called you and said, we want to pick your brain about what F1 did right from that perspective, and we want to steal it, what are you telling them to steal? It's, I would tell them it's not that easy because yeah. the problem is that F1 is so unique and that is really, that's what, and it's not anyone's fault. It, it's just the way it is. But I think that's something that a lot of people have failed to realize is like, it's not like Formula One just said, Hey, we'll do a docu-series and now they're here. They have a very, very, very unique product. And so if you don't have a very unique product, but you have a docu-series, people aren't going to care. The reason people care about F1 is because it's a very, and Dodger Survive, it's a very unique product in Formula One. So I do think, obviously, there are some lessons to learn for other leagues. You know, clearly you want to try and go all in to the extent you can with digital and social like Formula One has done. Um, with Netflix, obviously, it can't hurt to do more shoulder programming. But I do think, you know, the PGA tours of the world, I mean they're not going to be able to see a 50% increase just because they did a docu-series. Now, granted, they have a higher base to start with. Right. That's part of the reason why F1 saw such huge percentage gains. They had a low base. But, you know, I don't think that Magic Pixie Dust is just going to be able to be there for everyone. I think um, F1's a very unique product. And to that point, you know, in within motorsports, you're seeing NASCAR, IndyCar yeah. try and do things. And it's a similar debate there. It's like, hey, we've seen Formula One grow. Let's go on Netflix. And I don't think it's going to be quite the same for a NASCAR and IndyCar because it's just a different product. I, I want to get to NASCAR in one second. I want to ask, so I, I saw a quote from a couple of years ago from a F1 executive saying the heartbeat of Formula One is always going to be summer in Europe. It's always going to be Belgium, Monaco, Silverstone. That That is established, right? But the more American races, and by the way, there, there's a race in May in America, there's a race in October in America, and the next year in November. So the summer is remaining untouched. But it seems to me that if if Formula One becomes an American sport, Liberty Media is okay with that. Do you get that read as well? Oh, definitely. I mean, the, you know, I think you saw a big piece today from Bloomberg that just said, "Here's what F1 finally did to grow globally. They Americanized." And so um, that's exactly right. Again, you know, when Liberty Media bought the series, they put these American executives in charge. They knew they were going to do the same things that they've done for stick and ball sports in America. Um, and so I definitely think they're okay with that. Um, I think it's something to keep an eye on whether they add a fourth race here in due course. You know, again, they've had talks with New York City. So, you know, I, I don't know how they work it out because Miami's got a 10-year deal. I'm assuming Ve Vegas is only three to start, but if it works, they're going to want to do a it, longer. It, it's going to work. Right. And Coda's <laughs> got a five-year deal. So I don't know where they fit in that fourth race, but I wouldn't even rule that out at this point. Um, you know, obviously not next year, but maybe in the in the years after that. Maybe they, they work out some sort of rotation. We'll have to see. But I definitely think um, they're loving it. You know, you hear Zach Brown from McLaren. He says half of our sponsors now are U.S.-based. Mm -hmm. and, and he absolutely kills it from a sponsorship perspective. They've done amazing. That's how he really got that job. He was a U.S. sponsorship hunter. So I, I don't think Liberty has any problem with that. Yeah, I mean, that the, the fourth race is interesting. I think it was Zach Brown who said this at that event I was at, where they've talked to New York City before, but it's been Jersey City-centric or Hoboken or the other side of the river. And I don't think that F1 necessarily wants that. I mean, they're already here in, in you know, at the Dolphin Stadium. Coda is obviously um, what it is. They're going to the, the, the Vegas Strip. You know, they, I think they want to be in the heartbeat of, of the city would be my guess. This is a logistical problem. Um, but I also think that there's a, I think there's a novelty in being in some of these American cities that I think that we, I mean, I, I always go through um, soccer a lot, right? And I think about how there's a lot of gatekeeping in soccer, especially if you're an American fan and all of a sudden you're getting into Chelsea or going to Stanford Bridge. And I think that sometimes those fans say, you know, what do you know about the sport? It was interesting to me because I went to a, an event a couple of years ago in uh, in Hollywood and uh, Red Bull and Renault, Daniel Ricardo at the time, 
Um, and uh, Mercedes basically just drove around Hollywood going, you know, half speed, doing some wheelies or whatever. And I remember the team principals and Dave Coulter, who was there, and a handful of other people were just like, wowed. I think Brundle was there. And they were just wowed that Formula One had grown so much that they could drive through Los Angeles. And they, you know, 10 years ago, they, they wouldn't have even conceived of that. And so I think that the, the, the F1, the drivers, the teams, everybody, they're embracing Formula One's role uh, in America. And I think that there's going to be absolutely no pushback if there is a fourth race in two or three years, and it's in, in uh, Los Angeles, New York, something like that. That's a great point. There was absolutely no pushback in Las Vegas. And yeah. another thing that I think is interesting is when F1 first tried and the Dolphins first tried to get an F1 race here in Miami, they, of course, tried in Biscayne Boulevard, downtown Miami. Right. That was in like 2018. That was like two or three years before F1 got big here. So one thing I think will be interesting is, look, they have built a lot of permanent things here. They might be pot committed to Hard Rock Stadium. But I almost wonder, you know, now that F1 has grown so much, does Tom Garfinkel, the managing partner of this race, want to go back to the Miami City Council mm. and say, hey, in a couple of years, do you want us to actually maybe try this in downtown Miami instead? So they've got a 10-year deal. It's a long time. And, you know, yes, this race is very exciting right now because it's the first time. But after this weekend, it'll have been done before. And now they're going to have to find a way to keep it exciting for year two and the years ahead. So I think that's one thing they'll keep an eye on as well is somewhere down the line, do they try and move this race back to downtown Miami now that F1 has grown like gangbusters? Because the last time they talked to the city council was in 2018. Right. F1 hadn't had its growth here yet. Interesting. Um, F1, Miami City Council will do whatever you want. I mean, that's that's been proven. There's a Marlins stadium. There's going to be an inter-Miami stadium. The Miami Hurricanes are the only team that didn't scam a stadium out of the out of the Miami City Council. Um, a couple more for you. Does NASCAR hate this? Uh, yes and no. Um, <laughs> I lean towards yes, but I think the thing about it is it still remains to be seen whether this is going to be a rising tide lifts all boats or a zero-sum game in terms of F1's growth in America. Um, they're obviously hoping it's going to be a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, clearly, as someone else said to me, and it's a great way to put it, it's like, you know, you always want to be the cool kid yeah. and you don't want to be, you, you know, the other one. And so now they're not the cool kid right now. Right. And so therefore, obviously, naturally, to an extent, they don't like that. Um, they want to have the attention on them. They've always been the biggest property in the U.S. for quite a while. So there's definitely some, you know, natural apprehension around this. At the same time, I think they recognize that, hey, look, a couple years ago, I was sitting in motorsports conferences with business executives and they'd be talking about, no, kids don't want to drive anymore. Yeah. They don't get their driver's license. People don't like cars anymore. So that's changed. Now, core, you know, motorsports is cool again. There's an element of that that NASCAR has to like. And so I think it is a yes and no. Um, you know, would they prefer to be the big, hot, popular property right now? Yes. Do they hope that maybe eventually they can convince some of these new F1 fans from America to become NASCAR fans? Also, yes. So I think it's a little bit of both. Well, what's funny is the conversation is totally different because NASCAR still gets four times the viewers most weekends. It's just about the conversation. It's just about the fact that this weekend, Tom Brady and Josh Allen and uh, Michael Jordan and LeBron James probably are going to be here. And they're not going, Michael Jordan is obviously, but that's a, that's a business relationship, but they're not going to Talladega. They're not going to Daytona in most cases. Um, that to me is, is where NASCAR needs to figure out what, where the disconnect is, because it's not, you know, if you're talking about TV revenue and TV ratings in America, it's, it's still NASCAR, but NASCAR can't get in the conversation. And I don't know where you go from there. Yeah, I think you're talking about a fascinating point. I mean, NASCAR, you know, they lost the kind of the cultural resonance. It happened over decades. Of course, yeah. you know, it's a sport that became known as very conservative. Um, 
you know, at a time when, you know, a country maybe is moving in a different direction politically. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned a lot of people off from that regard. It's, it's had some racial issues through the years. You know, that turned a lot of people off. You know, you saw during the pandemic them try to pivot and they tried to pivot because they know that they need to grow with the next generation. Um, NASCAR still has like three to four times as many viewers when you talk about total viewers, but now when you talk about 18 through 49. Yeah, it was almost four, tied. Yeah. It gets a lot closer. So they see that the rising generation is, is kind of more so aligned with F1. There was an interesting quote from Kevin Harvick, the NASCAR driver, a couple of weeks ago. His son is into karting, and he said all the guys, at the, all the kids at the car track want to race, race for Red Bull. You know, so they're, you know, they, they can tell that this is an important time for them to try, um, to try and figure out how they can get more relevant culturally. You know, again, they've done things in the past couple of years to try and become better you know obviously a big ones like they they banned the confederate flag you know sure. they're doing things to try and become more racially diverse all that stuff but the problem is that happened during the pandemic well also during the pandemic people sat at home and watched netflix and fell in love with f1 so it'll be interesting to see over the long term can they get some of that resonance back i think nascar needs to go all in on what it's good at which is contact racing yeah. you know they need to say hey we're the sport where you can hit each other you know move each other out of the way you can also can, do it after the race right you can that's another yeah. thing you know we kind of embrace that part whereas in f1 you know you don't fight each other you don't crash <laughs> each other's cars because they're basically like airplanes yeah, 300 million dollars so, right so i think nascar needs to go all in on what it's good at and if it does that there could be room for for both i don't want to overdo the nascar fighting angle but I signed up for TikTok a couple of months ago just to follow different accounts, like just the dumb sports I like, boxing, football, obviously, uh, auto racing. And I came across a supercut of NASCAR fights over the past decade. And it was the most compelling. And I like cars. I like, love cars. I, I watch NASCAR. But damn, I was so excited about this, this supercut of fights. And I'm like, why? Listen, I know NASCAR can't promote the fights, but why can't they just get it out there that these guys... Hey, you know what? No one's ever gone broke marketing the phrase, hey, look at this lunatic, you know? Well, here's the thing about it is NASCAR kind of has because what they've stopped doing is like now if you fight, you don't get in trouble. I mean, like, so um, <laughs> there, go. there was, there was the, the, the um, Joe Gibbs' grandson, Ty yeah, Gibbs, yeah, a couple yeah. weeks ago, he got into a fight. He did. and Didn't take his helmet a- off. After, right, after the race, he bumped into the guy's car first and then he punched him in the mouth. He got in trouble, but only for pu- or bumping the guy's car. They said, hey, you cannot use your car as a weapon, but they didn't penalize him for punching the guy in the face. So by implication, they are basically saying like, hey, if you want to settle on pit road and have a little fight, you're not going to get in trouble. There's a classic NASCAR saying that they, um, one of their race directors years ago said, our direction, our philosophy is boys are going to be bull or yeah. let the boys have at it. And uh, they're kind of getting back to that boys have at it situation where they're letting say, hey, if you want to settle on pit road, go ahead and do it. So I think that's what they need to lean into is, you know, F1 is going to be that sexy international sport, um, you know, with the really sleek cars that can't crash each other you know they can't barge each other else you know one's going to go flying into the fence so that they can't do that in f1 you know they can't have cars hitting each other out of the way that's what nascar can do and i think uh that's what they need to go all in on last thing for you this is a big question if you don't have an answer it's fine in five years when we look back on this weekend f1 in miami making a huge statement in america what will be the biggest thing that comes out of this weekend um, I think you kind of hit on earlier, just the cultural relevance, yeah. you know, all of the the stars that are coming this weekend and the way that it's clear, like that this is such a huge event, the way that it's taken over, not just the racetrack, but the entire Miami area, you know, you step off the airport, uh, you step off the airplane into the airport and there's signage everywhere from all the sponsors. This is when people talk about when NASCAR was big, they're talking about, it used to be things like this, where yeah. you would go to a city and then you knew NASCAR was in town because the entire city was taken over by NASCAR. 
that's what's happening this weekend with F1. We've kind of seen that in Coda and Austin in recent years, but maybe a not to this extent. Not like this. Not like this. I'll give you an example. I just spoke with a Mercedes sponsor, IWC. They're doing all sorts of activations around the town. They said they've never done something like this before. Yeah. So I think that's what'll be the biggest thing. Um, obviously, some people remember the fake marina. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, it'll be a great race that we can remember yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. But I just think the cultural relevance um, has become so clear this weekend. You can't ignore it. Adam Stern, he covers motorsports for SPJ. Thanks, man. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.